All right, let's read Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 20. If you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be astonished at the situation, because one official protects another official, and the higher officials protect them. The profit from the land is taken by all, and the king is served by the field. The one who loves money is never satisfied with money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply, what then is the profit of the owner? Except to gaze at them with his eyes. The sleep of his work, sleep of the worker, sorry, is sweet. Whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. There is a sickening tragedy that I see under the sun. Wealth kept by its owners to his harm. That wealth was lost in a bad venture. So when he fathered his son, he was empty-handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again naked as he came. He will take nothing for his efforts that he carry in his hands. This too is sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. What does the one gain who struggles for the wind? What is more, he eats in darkness all his days with much sorrow, sickness, and anger. Here is what I have seen to be good. It's appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him because that is his reward. God also gives riches and wealth to every man, and he allowed him to enjoy them take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God, for he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Am I on? Take this down. Well, good morning. We are glad that you're here with us. Um, my name is Ben. I'm on staff here at Restoration um, and you could be anywhere, but you're here in a parking lot in your car. And so we, glad, we are glad that you are, uh, as we look at Ecclesiastes. Uh, and Ecclesiastes is um, a book that looks at uh, the things that make up our life. Uh, the creature comforts the small things of day in, day out, and it examines it. It puts it under the microscope. And this morning we are looking at wealth, we're looking at money, finances, um, and we'll look at greed also. So, uh, to, to test your uh, film knowledge, in 1987, uh, a movie called Wall Street came out. And in Wall Street, there's a line, and I would love for you to fill it in for me. It says, greed is good. Michael Douglas, wide suspenders and the slick back gelled hair, grabs the boom mic and he says, greed is good, at the end of the movie. And he goes on to say more. He says, do I need to do anything else? He said, greed is good. And he also says, greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, greed for money, greed for love, for knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. Michael Douglas says, greed has marked the upward surge of mankind. You know, with, with the slick back hair and the suspenders, it feels slimy, doesn't it? 
right? Greed is good. To be upward surging in, in humanity, you have to be greedy. And we think that's the MO of some people, right? It could be the MO of those who are in tall buildings, or it could be the MO of people who aren't in tall buildings. People who are the, the highest part of our society, but for some, maybe not. Uh, what I would offer this morning is there is an element of greed in all of us, and it's not in a way that's maybe overt, but it's smaller, and it's covert, and it's sneaky. And Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, shows us that. And he talks about money, and you don't have to make a lot of money for there to be something in this for you. And so I invite you to, again, pull out your phones and look up Ecclesiastes 5 as we walk through it. And this morning we'll look at two things. First of which is uh, the weariness of greed. The weariness of greed. And second is uh, the joy of our lot. The joy of our lot. So let me pray as we look at Ecclesiastes 5 this morning. Lord, there's a great temptation to view um, money, wealth, finances, the things that make up the bank accounts that we live by in our own terms. And so this morning, would you show us what those terms look like amid what your word tells us where joy is found? This is not a time of shaming, but rather a time of examination as you inform us this day. We pray, Lord, this to be the case. Amen. So first, uh, the weariness of, good, of greed. Uh, Zig Ziglar, an American icon, said, uh, money won't make you happy, but everyone wants to find out for themselves. And it's true. Everyone does want to find out. We know in our hearts that money won't satisfy, but yet there are parts of our lives that want to find out for ourselves. And Solomon is a writer. He's the son of David. And he's this great king, and he has a great empire. He has great wealth. He has all of these things. And he's saying he's had it all, and now he's examining life. And he's having an honest, candid look at what life is like. Of all the things that he has, he's examining, and he's showing, and he's sharing. And the first, we'll look at, uh, at chapter 5, and so I invite you to have it in front of you. And the first thing he notes is there's a corruption of wealth in society. Right? He goes big picture. He says in, in verse Eight, he says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. And he's telling us, as we look at the world, there is injustice. There is. And he's telling us, you shouldn't be surprised, right? Where there are structures, there are cracks in the structure, where there are levels, there are cracks. It's not just in our day right now. He felt it years and years and years ago. And he's saying there's a weariness in wealth because those who are high often are pushed higher. And those who are low are often oppressed and pushed lower. He's saying as we begin to talk about the personal relationship with wealth and greed, we have to examine the big picture of it's bigger than just us. But then he gets pointed, right? He shows there's a weariness, and those who are high are brought higher, and those who are low are oppressed more. But he goes on and gets personal and pointed and forthright. And he says in verse 10, he said, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth with his uh, income, this also is vanity. 
He's getting blunt. He's being straightforward. John D. Rockefeller is one of um, the wealthiest people to ever live on American soil. Right? He's a, he's a 21st century uh, tycoon, and, and he's made a lot of money. He made a lot of money in his day. And someone asked him and said, hey, how much is enough? How much money do you need for it to be enough? And he famously said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more, right? You and I know the element of greed is this. We know we can have more. There is potential to make more, to have more, to possess more. And that discontentment of knowing there could be more drives us and drives us and drives the greed in all of us. There always can be more. Just a little bit more, that will be enough. And it shows this, that the weariness of greed comes when we realize that all greed offers is a hit and a high for more, and it never gives us a fill. But one theologian said, um, if anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it's the emptiness it leaves. And that's what Solomon is saying. And Solomon goes on to say in verse 11, if you look with me, when goods increase, they, they increase who eat them. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? And what he's saying is, we think... When we get more money, it's just going to come to us and come to us. It'll be ours. But instead, he's saying, actually, when you get more money, more things come with it. More taxes, more work to, to manage and protect your money, more knocks at the door of people who want your money. Right? We know the stories of people who win the lottery and, and, and all of a sudden their friends uh, quadruple. Because everyone wants a piece of the pie. One woman won the lottery and said that all of her friends, even the people who loved her, she said, turned into vampires. Right? There are elements that when greed gets what it wants with more and more and more, there's only more things that come with it that we don't expect. And it shows the weariness of greed. More comes with it than just dollar signs, than just zeros. So he's saying these things about greed, these things about wealth. But then he shifts, and in verse 12, he talks and says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but full is the stomach of the rich uh, who will not let him sleep. And it's interesting because he's not just talking about the wealthy, now he's talking about those who labor also, those who are lower. And he's saying it's sweet because those who labor and those who put their, uh, punch the clock in put the work in, have sweet sleep. But those who have much money actually aren't uh, getting much rest. Their stomachs are full. And Solomon is showing that uh, just as more things come with wealth that can be negative, he's saying not just the weariness of greed comes with the inflammation of the heart, but it affects our whole body. It affects our sleep, our, our stomachs. Right, he's pointing out and showing the, the encompassing scope of greed and the effects it has on us. But it's hard to sleep when you have much to manage. When we get what we want, it can bring restlessness. And then finally, in verses 13, 14, and 15, he points out that there's a weariness and greed. He says, there is a grievous evil that I've found and, and seen under the sun. Right, Under the sun meaning in all of life. He said, there's a grievous evil I've seen. He says, riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he says in verses 15, he shall take nothing 
for his toil, that he may carry away in his hand. When there's a great importance put on money, it gives us much promise, but what it actually gives us is a hurt, is a bruising, and, and there's a weariness of wealth because greed gives us more, but never satisfies to give us fullness. And it beats us up and leaves us for the birds. So, that's what Solomon is saying, right? These little anthologies of what greed and wealth bring. But what about us today? How do we operate now? And there's a way that Solomon is telling us this. Greed deforms us, right? It's, it's reductionary. It, it deforms us. It's not sharpening or good for us. And here's why. He's saying it's because we believe greed to be a good master. We believe money and wealth to be a good master and yet, we're empty-handed. Right? Greed is good. Michael Douglas, slick back hair, wide suspenders says. But he's saying that because the basis and the element of the foundation of greed being good is born out of the idea that contentment can only be found when you operate out of discontentment. Right? It sounds nice and it sounds very um, umph-oriented, Right? But in the idea of greed being good, it's the idea of I have to have more and then I'll be happy. Contentment is only found when there is discontentment. In the Garden of Eden, Satan asked Eve a question. And the question was, did God really say? Did God really say? And this led Eve to, to think things and do things that obviously we know the things that happened in the Garden of Eden. But it's the smallest question that, that breeds this discontentment and this, uh, this doubt and this distortion. Right? This question of, did God really say? And when it comes to wealth, we can ask the same question to ourselves. Because Satan asks us the same question of, did God really say? And when we see it in our modern day, with our uh, quietness in the soul, is disrupted by the question of, did God really say? Right? Did God really say he'd take care of you? Because the amount of money in your account is running low and payday is far away. Did God say you shouldn't love money because it can really get you places? Upward mobility, upward surge of mankind, as Michael Douglas put it. Did God really say you shouldn't love it? Right? Did God really say money belongs to Him because you've worked so hard for it? There is a deforming aspect of greed that puts us in a place of discontentment not to live toward contentment, but actually this perpetual idea of discontentment. That's the weariness of greed, is that discontentment brings discontentment, which brings discontentment. I know for myself, there's an idea that between my grass and my neighbor's grass, which always looks greener, the element ingredient that's missing is more money. There's nothing money can't fix. The way I think just a little more, just like Rockefeller said, if there's just a little more, it'd be fine, it'd be okay, it'd be enough. Greed deforms, it makes us weary, it doesn't make us whole. And so, uh, what's the solution, right? How is contentment found? How is joy found? And Solomon doesn't just leave us feeling bad and broken and empty, he gives us a solution. This king who had so much tells us something, and he tells us this idea of 
The second idea of the joy of our lot. L-O-T, the joy of our lot. And the joy of our lots is seen uh, where he says, if you look in verse 18 with me, the joy of our lot, it says, here's what is good, that it's appropriate for a person to eat and to drink and find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during a few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Our lot is to find contentment in what we have among us. Right? The things that make up our life, when we begin to sit and be still, we're not supposed to have a weary, greedy spirit. We're actually supposed to have a preserving perspective, a persevering perspective that says, I look at my life and I know I can go the distance the days of my life because of what I see now. And that's possible because of two things, right? In two Psalms, it says things that make that possible. Psalm 90, it says, For a thousand days in your sight, God, are like a watch in the night for us. So, so a thousand days of our life to God looks like a day in the night, right? There's a, there's a point where there is an eternality. God is not time-bound. He lives to see generation after generation after generation. But as he lives to see generation after generation, he supplies and he sets things up for us that we can find joy in the days that we live because it says in, in Psalm 30, it says, weeping may last in the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. So just as he controls day and day and generation to generation, so he supplies morning after morning things like joy, uh, things like mercy, the things that bring a contentment in us. We have to have a preserving perspective that brings contentment. Because when we confuse, I want to say this clearly, but also humbly. When we confuse things like prosperity and the gospel, it doesn't create a cocktail that goes down smooth, but it creates a, a poison that erodes us. And actually, contentment is found when we begin to look at our life and say, it is not what I have to my name, but what's said about me about who I am and whose I am. So I don't need to take advantage with a greedy spirit that says greed is good and an upward surge. Life is actually found in the monotony of the day in and day out, of the people that are in the car next to you, that you don't take advantage of them. Actually, they possess a beauty that bring the joy of our lots. In 2008, Tim Tebow sported eye black on his, his face, right? Uh, and um, it's a famous story, and you can look back and see it. But on one of them, it said, Phil 413, right? Philippians 413, probably the silver medal of most well-known verse in the Bible behind John 316. But in Philippians 413, you know, it says, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul writes that to a people who need encouragement. Right before he writes that verse, right, the second most well-known verse in the Bible, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, uh, Paul writes something else. He's in jail. He's in prison. He has nothing to his name. He's in shackles. And right before he writes that, Paul writes and says this, 
In, in Philippians 4.11, he says, I am not saying this because I'm in need. He says, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is like to be in need. I know what it's like to have plenty. I have learned the secret of contentment in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in wants, it's out of that, he says, I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. Paul writes, the secret of contentment is not having much or none. And, and also Solomon, who's writing Ecclesiastes, is saying contentment doesn't come when you have much or nothing. The biblical writers are saying contentment comes when we look at our life and say, I don't need the things that give me the creature comforts. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because I know the supply of the blood on the cross and the supply of what he offers me now offers enough for today. Offers enough for me to go into work every Monday. To relate to the person who I have been estranged to who have been estranged to me. Right, the things that make up our life that, that cause us deep discontentment, Paul is saying, I've learned to be content. Much little. A lot's nothing. All because of who Christ is to my very situation. Where the voice of, of discontentment that's bred of saying, did God really say, is met by a cross of Christ that says, here's what God says. That you and me can find contentment because of what he offers. Let's pray. Lord, there is a great temptation to think we need more. That we need an upward surge. And that upward surge is seen in the form of greed, being good. So Jesus, where we are being deformed um, by different things and different thoughts... Please rewrite the story in our lives that says of your cross, it's enough for me. And it says of your life, it's enough for me. And your death, it's enough for me. And Jesus, that looks who you are to us now as you're shaping us in 2020 with purpose amid tumultuous times. And we look at you and you say, you are enough for me. You are the daily bread for the lot of my life. And that's where I find joy. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.